Hi, this is Jamie Pride, and welcome to episode 26 of the Failure Proof Podcast. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the podcast where we explore leadership, performance, resilience, and the mindset needed to thrive in the modern workplace. This week's episode is brought to you by The Founder Lab, a free community where entrepreneurs can share experiences and ideas and work towards becoming a better founder. Find out more at thefounderlab.com.au. On this week's show, I'm joined by Paul Naphtali. Paul is the co-founder of Rampersand VC, an early-stage Australian tech fund established in 2013 to help address the funding gap for Australian and New Zealand founders. Prior to becoming a venture capitalist, Paul held senior marketing roles in a number of high-growth startups, including Jar Jar, prior to it being acquired by Telefonica. During this episode, Paul discusses his journey from the corporate world to startups and now to venture capital. He discusses the nuanced role that VCs play in supporting founders and how he builds trusted relationships with the entrepreneurs that he invests in. We also chat about what strategies entrepreneurs can employ to develop a self-care mindset, the role of directors on startup boards, and the flawed mythology that sometimes surrounds these businesses. Lastly, we discuss the makeup and dynamics that make a great entrepreneur. Paul is a great VC and an amazing person. I'm sure you'll take something away from this episode. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Paul Naftali. Welcome. Very well said. G'day. <laughs> <laughs> and um, tell us a little bit about yourself like, and your journey um, to venture capitalism. So I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Rampersand together with Jim Cassidy. We, we launched Rampersand 2013. Uh, really when venture capital in this iteration in Australia was was really young and, and sort of semi-non-existent. And uh, Jim and I had both worked in senior exec roles in tech businesses around the world. Most recently for me, I was in Silicon Valley for a number of years, uh, sort of head of marketing, head of communications type roles mm. and felt really strongly coming back here that you know our people in Australia are as good as – I was working with people in Israel, working with people in Silicon Valley, raising money, doing great things and our – our people are as good as they are. Mm. What they didn't have was a lot of what we call value-additive capital. So the ability to actually not just invest in the businesses and attract cash, but actually people who helped you on your journey and who not only respected but thirst, you know, loved that highly ambitious world's best attitude. Um, you know, five years later, it's much more common. But uh, for those of you listening who were around in the ecosystem, mm. there wasn't much. And so, would have been hard yards. Oh, five years ago? Our first fund was very small and we didn't actually call it a venture capital fund. We <laughs> called it an innovation fund. Nice. Uh, was that because you were ashamed to be called yourself venture look, capitalists? Or? We were not ashamed. Uh, but when you talk to investors and they said, the memories were venture capitals never worked in Australia. We've all lost our money. There's not enough good people. There's not enough good opportunities. And venture capital was synonymous with losing money and constantly raising money. Yeah. And it was not synonymous with delivering returns mm. and building big businesses, which okay. is really what we wanted to do. Fantastic. And did you guys know each other? 
What's what's the history? We met through our sisters-in-law. No uh, way. So we we're both coming back to Australia. I was coming back from Mountain View, California, and he was coming. Jim was coming back from Paris, and they did that thing where they go, "You guys are in tech. Yeah, you should know each you other. Guys you, both, you guys are both in tech. Of course, you should yeah, know each other. You should other. know each There's other. Only four of us in tech, and, and and we kind of we kind of left it probably six months to follow up, and we were both back in Melbourne, and uh, and we sort of out of obligation. We got together and yep. had a coffee. And it's I, one of those ones where you know, like it's like a, it's like a blind date. It's, you know, you know, blind corporate date. Yeah, tick the box. Yeah, you know, yeah. Keep your sister-in-law and your brother happy. Yeah. And uh, and and I just said, to, you know, sort of almost the opening line was, "Geez, isn't Australia exciting?" And "Geez, isn't Australia frustrating?" Mm. And Jim said, "Yeah, I've been thinking the same thing." I said, "Well, here's how I think we can fix it." And he said, "That's pretty dumb." Here's how I think we can fix it. I said, "That's pretty smart." Um, and we sort of started just. You know, you know those meetings when you think they're going to take half an hour and you realise four hours later you're yeah, still totally. workshopping stuff. Is it the, the the commonality that we had was really deep in terms of sort of values and vision mm. and skill sets were very complementary. So what I mean by that is we just said there's an opportunity to make a ton of money. Like mm. that's central to everything. You know, it, it, there's lots of great not for profit work. Yep, um, and that's really valid. That wasn't. The space mm-hmm. we were in. For profit. Yeah. We were for profit. And the reason for that is because we think ambition and alignment comes around commercial success in mm. this space. You know, I worked a lot with Sequoia businesses. Most of the business I was working for were backed by tier one VCs in Silicon Valley. Yep. They were hugely supportive, nurturing, value additive, mm. and they are not a charity. And it was yep. really quite easy when you when you focus around alignment, you know where you're going. So we said it we want to make help people make a lot of money. Yeah, we want founders as heroes. They're the inspiration to the people who come next, and we want it to be inclusive mm. uh, because inclusive was really important. We're building a a, a structure for Australia. Mm. Australia is sort of an oligopolistic environment. We've got lots of money, lots of talent locked up in non-innovative pursuits. Mm. We want to be open to them and say, you know, we we don't have the attitude that says we're tech, we're the future. You know, everyone else is not tech. They're dumb. Mm. Uh, so let's open up these doors. And, and so that was really – we had a common set of values around that. And then mm. we said, what do founders need? What do they need to be successful? How do we capture what is great about other ecosystems, which is that recycling of knowledge and networks and capital, mm. and give that to founders day one? Awesome. Not have them make the thousands of dumb mistakes that we've all made. Let's avoid those mistakes. Yep. Uh, let's make new ones. And so, did I guess Melbourne born and bred. And uh, so, obviously, went to school, went to uni in Melbourne, and then found yourself in Silicon Valley. Tell us that story. Oh, there's a couple of leaps. So, so yes, Melbourne born and bred. Yep. Um, started work. Yeah, you know, studied in Melbourne. Started work. Actually, I did a business. What was degree. your first job? Uh my first job was selling overhead projectors. Nice. Uh, well, I was still at uni. I just am having flashbacks to the castle at this point in time. <laughs> exactly what it was. Did you buy them on the trading post? It was dialing for dollars. <laughs> right. It was in the call centre. So I was still at uni. You know, yeah. you know, I had all the shelf packing jobs and you know, delivery, but yeah. that was like my first you know, proper paid gig. Well, I sort of took half a semester off and, and I was actually on the phone selling... Selling overhead projectors. Overhead projectors. The ones with acetate, not the ones with we... Uh, no, no, not the, the fancy stuff space. now. For, I mean, half the no. audience, uh, we've just lost at this yeah. point in time. So, you know, they don't even know what an overhead sorry, projector is. Sorry, kids, young, young Yeah, folks. kids, that's before the internet at yeah. uh, this point in time. Well, it's funny. So, so I was doing my business degree in the mid-90s mm. and I had a couple of electives. And right. I said to the head of the course... I think this internet thing is going to impact business. Mm. You know, I was majoring in marketing, I think, and 
uh, I think it's going to impact marketing. And the head of the course said, yeah, Paul, I, I think you're right. And I said, great, I want to do a module on that. And he said, yeah, you should, but we've got no one to teach it. Wow. And, you know, that's how old I am. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm that's not far how things you. were going. <laughs> and so that's, it's been a sort of a real interest and passion of mine. So how do these new ways of really – and it was a communication platform. Mm. You know, how do they disrupt the, what we – the, the rules that we take for granted. I'm a typically sort of naughty kid and got in trouble and not out of any sort of malice, but just the rules were interesting and and they were sort of a, a starting guideline. Mm. And how do you think about them? And I thought the internet was a real uh, symbol of how that really comes to scale and a global disruption level. And so, yeah, I loved. So actually, my first job was in real job was in advertising, yeah, uh, and then public relations and. Uh, always from the PR side was around, you know, this is heading into dot-com boom, lots of money in startups. I was the young kid with an interest in my agency, set up a whole tech practice and, yeah, we worked with some of the big multi, yeah, big local, um, big multinationals, but the ones that gave me my greatest thrill was working with the startups. Mm. Yeah. And it wouldn't have been, it would have been an emerging area, right? Because FMCG and auto and all of the other big sort of staples of advertising, and then probably a tech practice would have been small at the time. Tiny. I mean, it was it was from zero, and it really the advertising world didn't touch it. It was really the PR world. Yeah. And you know, PR started taking on a new definition, yeah, almost from that point, which was sort of publicity is its origin, you know, helping mm. companies get sort of editorial you know, news coverage into actually crafting what is this whole mission, what is the vision, what is the go-to-market, what are the value propositions, how do you create channels for distribution when you're not selling through shops or car yards anymore, you're yeah. selling through computers. And, and, and the thrill was to spend time with people who really saw a future mm. that was different to what we had today and that tech was going to enable that and they were really good at sort of intuitively understanding it or, or through study understanding it, they weren't particularly good at articulating their value proposition yeah. or articulating what it was going to create, the vision. And they used to say, like, thank God, because that was actually what I really understood and what I became quite good at was taking pretty complex technical propositions and helping simplify them. I wasn't smart enough to actually understand them in their full complexity. Yeah. And that was what PR became to me. It was sort of what we would now call strategic communication. So. Mm. I did that for a number of years in Melbourne, went to London, headed up a division of a strategic comms agency there, mm-hmm. met my wonderful wife, had a child in London. Uh, we had agreed, she's English, and we had agreed that we weren't raising kids <laughs> there. Thank God. I hope my in-laws aren't listening. <laughs> yep. uh, and we were packing up moving uh, to Australia. We'd sold that agency. I was a junior partner, had yep. a little bit of money for the first time, said we're packing boxes, taking our six-month-old baby home. Yep. When a company called Jar Jar, which was uh, – uh, amazing company, Austrian founders, Israeli R and D, Irish CEO, based in Mountain View, California. Well, that's a diverse mix of people. It was incredible, and they were very early in the mobile voiceover IP space. And, mm. and I'd worked with them through this agency. When I told them I was going to Australia, they said, "Well, don't go home. Go halfway home. Come to Mountain View, California, yep. and head our global marketing." Which one sort of pretty awkward but exciting conversation with uh, my wife later I'm on mm. a plane to Mountain View, California. Yeah. And that that really changed everything. That opened. You know, I hadn't been to Silicon Valley at that point, and yeah. it, uh, we're based in um, East Charleston Road, like literally yeah, across hot. 101 from Google. Um, you know, the, the guys when they first, the founders when they first moved to Mountain View were in Google's you know, Larry and Sergey's original office. You know, mm. It was it was the heart of Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, and what's really impossible to understand from outside is the 
the scale of the ambition and the pace and all the moving parts. It takes a while to, to build up to that, but once you're there, it's really addictive. Mm. Um, and we end up selling that business two years after I joined for a few hundred million euros mm. to a, a large Spanish telco. And that was a fantastic outcome. This is sort of early 2010. Uh, so money back to our VCs at that point was manna mm. from heaven for them. They were delighted. Uh, and I ended up working in a similar capacity with a, a series of companies, lots of Israeli R&D, lots of headquarters in Mountain View or Palo Alto or Redwood City, some great outcomes, uh, a couple of businesses that I was either working or advising sold to Facebook, uh, to Singtel, um, a few didn't work. And through that process, sort of moved our family ended up moving back to uh, Melbourne or mm. – not back to in my wife's case, but we moved to Melbourne. Mm. I started spending a bit more time here, sort of 2010, 11, sort of a bit concerned that there wasn't exciting enough exciting stuff happening. And you know, in hindsight, there was actually more happening than I realised. But it mm. was still, it was not startups. You know, I used to talk about the term. You use the word ecosystem, and everyone says, "Stop being a wanker." That's you sound ridiculous, mm. but it wasn't on the agenda. No. And so I just kept on taking roles back in Silicon Valley. And especially in Melbourne. I mean, I look at um, – I think it's interesting to get your view on on how you personally adjusted coming back to Australia. And, it, and it's not that Australia's um, a backwater, but oh, look, I've worked in the US and London and Singapore as well. And um, you're right, the pace is crazy. The access to capital is insane. The access to talent is insane. Um, I think Australia's the best place to live in the world. And I think we've got access to some of the best talent. But it was a big adjustment for me to come back from, you know, from Singapore and London, um, you know, and Based myself in Melbourne, um, and I came back for family reasons as well. How how did that go for you? I mean, you know, was it was it a, was a big shock to the system? So, I failed at it, right? You know, frankly, so we came back. I couldn't adjust. I took jobs in California, right? You know, I literally when we moved back, and I sort of had a great payout from a company we just exited. I said, I've got six month lock in. They're paying me. I'm doing it from Melbourne. That's my time period to start a business. Mm. And I spent six months sort of thinking, what am I going to start? And yeah. and uh, one of the companies, through, through one of the VCs I knew well, they said, oh, can you actually come and work with us now in Redwood City? Right. And I said, yep. And right. that was that was sort of what happened. I so said, you're doing US jobs from Melbourne? So I, my, I was working on Pacific Time in Melbourne, get up really <laughs> early, had two young kids, see the kids during the day and then uh, talking to the Israelis at night. Mm. I'm on a plane at least once a month back to SFO. So it was really sort of denial that I was. I had all the wonders of living in Australia, and for those who know me, going to see my f- beloved footy team uh, in the AFL Richmond, and that was fantastic. Yeah. But all my work was done in you know what I sort of considered you know tier one ecosystems. Yeah. And actually, the origin, you know, sort of the origin of of Rampersan is really born out of that from my side, which was that was unsustainable domestically and commercially. Like it was always in my mind at some point, these American companies or Israeli companies are going to go, what the hell are we doing flying this guy in every yeah. month from Australia? Now, there were no signs of that slowing up. Every time we had an exit, the next job offer would roll in, but it wasn't really a smart structure. Mm. But more to the point, we started meeting great founders in Australia and the frustration grew and grew and grew. Why are these people not getting the same opportunities as people who are perhaps not as good as them in Mountain View or Palo Alto or in Tel Aviv. It's, mm. it's sort of not fair. I think our people are as good as anyone's in the world. And so I did that 
wonderfully Australian thing of spending sort of 12, 18 months kind of whinging about it. Mm. Uh, and then kind of had, actually I had my eyes lasered and I was in a, uh, I had the, the audio book of Steve Jobs biography. Really? I'll oh, uh, just stop there for a second. Tell me about lasering of eyes. <laughs> <laughs> is it as freaky as I hear it is? Well, if you're smart, you don't do what I do when you actually listen to your doctors and you take the two days and and then you're, you're fine. Right. I was pretty eager to get the tape and gunk out of my eyes and so I sort of forced them open thinking oxygen must be a good thing. Turns out it's not. Right. And so I spent a couple of extra days in, with in a strapped up head in right. the dark. Right. Okay. And so yeah. you used that time. It was the universe telling you needed to read Steve Jobs' biography. Not- so, so you used that time to listen to the audio book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I had the, had the audio book. It was book. just a Walter Isaac. That's one. right. Yeah. Uh, and it's really good. And um, so, yeah, and I think you could, you're in the dark. There's a perspective that that gives you uh, when you're sort of thinking, this is voluntary surgery and I've just made myself blind. What an idiot I am. Mm. And your mind sort of, and you're on some pretty heavy painkillers, which are sort of psychedelic, mm. and you're listening to this audio book. And early on, relative, you know, Steve Jobs and Woz have decided they're going to build, not not just sell the chipset, they're going to sell the box and they're mm. going to make it beautiful. And Sequoia invested and they said you have to have a chairman and the chairman comes down to their uh, garage and they said, Steve, this is, in every decade an industry is born – this is the industry for this decade. And it was at that moment, I was like, shit, that's how I feel about Australia. Mm. We've got all this talent. We've got all this opportunity. Everyone's complaining about lack of capital. We've got so much money. We mm. just need to harness it in the right way. And that was sort of came out and had that survivor syndrome, even though it sounds really lame because it was just bloody eye surgery. Yeah. But, <laughs> not even eye surgery, eye lasering, but like I, I got through this and I feel amazing <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to use my the chance. The morphine definitely worked, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Drugs, drugs uh, <laughs> have, a, have, a, yeah. have that effect. Hey, but look, if it inspired the business, you know, go it, for it. It was, it, was, it was a trigger to say, well, I do feel like that about Australia. And you need to sort of burn the bridges and, and actually put your bets on the, on the country and, and invest. Yeah. It was it was you know, less about burning the bridges and more about doing something. You know, mm. you know, the people I most admire, the people who mentor me, the people who have seen something and gone after it. You know, what I don't like and 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 don't tolerate is the people who say, "Yeah, I could have done that." Mm. And they see successful people and they go, "Well, I had that idea." Mm. The idea is yeah, not worth anything. Mm. It's the execution. And I felt like, and especially once I met Jim, that we had insights that were uncommon. Mm. Uh, that had value and we had the intent now to do something about it. Yeah. Um, so that was, the, that was the kick in the bum. And raise, raising a venture fund is hard. I mean, I mean, it just is. <laughs> um, and raising a venture fund in Australia is hard um, or an innovation fund, uh, fund one. Um, tell me about the tough days. Oh. Or, or are you going to tell me this was like a Cinderella story and, and the money just flowed in? Oh. Now you make it sound really bad, but but what I got, we we are very very lucky, right? Yeah, we're incredibly lucky. The first fund we raised in four weeks, right? And we thought it would take us six to twelve months, and we'd have to yeah. go to hundred people. We went to twenty and seventeen said yes. We had a really yeah. strong structure to it. We had the right way to open the doors. Jim and I had you know pretty good CVs. We had a very strong story, and we had you know, all the ingredients were in place. Perfect. We had good warm connections to a bunch of family offices, bunch of tech people who we knew, bunch of professional services people. Um, we had credibility walking in. Our ask wasn't very ambitious, and right. so it was sort of an easy yes. We kind of said, if you believe in the future of the country, this is something to do. Yeah, and we're not taking so much money that you're going to miss your next meal. There's every chance we blow this thing up. Mm. 
but we've got a methodology. We've thought through it. Here's our protections. Um, and so we got we got pretty lucky. And then because that fund has gone really well, we got pretty lucky with the second fund. We went back to the same people who, even though you know, venture doesn't provide quick returns, they were able to believe in the trajectory that we were on. We were able yep. to you know show them great companies that we'd invested in, show them their progress, and they all said, "If you've got the appetite, we'll keep going." And they introduced us to their friends. So. It ain't easy. None of it's easy. No, but, but it's been relatively easy. It sounds like. For I you. think. I think relatively easy. Partly we constrained the. Yeah, you know, we didn't go out to raise a hundred or two hundred million dollar yep. fund. We went out to raise a thirty million dollar fund or yep. a fifty million dollar fund, and yeah, you know, we we we've been lucky in that regard. Mm. Yeah, you know, every day where you're raising money is a day that you're not doing the things that you know, add Absolutely. value to the business, and that's true for founders and it's true for VCs. Mm. Where I'm really lucky. Uh, is our investors are all by definition successful people mm. and they all have interesting stories. Mm. And so when I get to spend my time between spending time with founders and getting to spend time with successful people who have perspectives that are different to mine, mm. that's a learning opportunity and, and they actually have huge relevance to each other. You know, we've got people who have been very successful in you know, real you know, non-technical environments, in law, in in, in fashion, in, in agriculture, uh, you know, all of their entrepreneurial journeys are interesting mm. and the commonality is the humans that build businesses the the profiles whether it's a tech business or a disruptive retail brand or a, you know, an apple business the mindset that creates a new pr- proposition and successfully brings it to market gets through the valleys of death reaches scale mm. they're interesting stories every single one of them Absolutely. And did you, I mean, did you see yourself ending up as a VC? <laughs> I know this is not visual, but I just laughed then. Like, <laughs> no, not not at all. I, there, I think there is a romance, romantic notion around founders in Australia. Mm. And I think it's true in the Valley as well, which is people who have this burning passion to solve a problem that they've experienced. And mm. I think that's a really legitimate way to start a business. I don't think it's the only way to start a business. No. I was really frustrated. You know, I talked about that six-month period where I was going to you know, create a new startup mm. you know when i come back from mountain view and the taxi drivers and the uber drivers and the waiters and everyone's got a startup idea i was like where's mine mm. vc wasn't what we called ourselves we still don't call ourselves vcs yep. you know really as a title it's it was the amalgam of the things we wanted to achieve mm. yeah and and what that is is investing in early stage businesses and helping them be successful there's lots and lots of ways to do that yeah you, know, you can have a consulting firm you can be a you know go and be an executive do it one at a time we felt it was really important to do it across a portfolio because you want to be able to have high impact uh, with regularity yeah um, and I think because I was a con- you know consultant for so many years the ability and desire actually to do it for multiple propositions at once mm. so it's not people often ask, you know, oh, you, you know what, what I want to get into venture capital, or say I want to get into venture capital. Mm. And it's a bit like saying I want to be a founder. Like, what is it you actually want to achieve yeah. out of that? You yeah. know, what is your purpose and mission? Now, obviously, we all want to make a lot of money, but mm. that's the starting point. It's how we do it that's really important. So, I don't think I'll ever identify myself as a venture capitalist to be no, but to somebody be fair. who enables other people to. And look, I don't want to be businesses. too romantic about it. My job is mm. to return money to our investors. investors like functionally, yeah. that's my job. Yep. But you know, in terms of personal drivers, yeah, it's, it's yeah. it. So one of the things we spoke about before we before we came on air um, is, I guess, this sort of shift in the landscape around. I guess who was responsible for taking care of founders, and I guess the elephant in the room is that um, the startup journey isn't easy. Um, and and I guess 
uh, my view on it is it is also a choice for people and, and, and you know, people deliberately choose that life. Um, some of them know what they're getting themselves into. Some of them don't. Um, the harsh reality is is that a lot of those founders will fail um, and some of them take that failure better than others. And so some people are more resilient um, than others in the face of that kind of adversity. I guess over your five years, you've had an opportunity to see founders at their best and their worst. Um, I guess, and I've heard really good things about you and, and your, your self-care and, and care for founders, um, which is sadly an unusual thing to hear in the industry, um, but I think a, a lovely thing to hear about you. What, what's your view on what is the responsibility of founders to take care of themselves, VCs to take care of founders? I mean, I don't think that founders should abdicate their responsibility as well, right? I mean, you know, it's like, well, my VC should take care of me. I think that's, that's bullshit, frankly. Um, but, but what's your view around that? It's a big question. Yeah. Um, so part of part of the answer there's a structural part of the answer yeah. and there's a sort of a human part of the answer like mm. the journey is hard i think mm. for some people it is a choice i think for other people they go into it blindly and naively mm. because they don't you know some of the best companies they didn't call themselves founders they just were building a business yeah you know um the best founders yeah there is there is everyone's got imposter syndrome mm. everyone has moments of doubt and it the causes of that are really varied and it's very individual. You know, we have micro failures. You know, one of the you know, people have decision fatigue, people have poor outcomes. You know, and, and the, the, the most important, you know, there's someone else's quote, you know, the, the best decision you can make is the right one, mm. the second best decision you can make is the wrong one, and the, and the, th- and the worst decision you can make is no decision. Yeah. And so it's high pressure. Founders, in particular early days, but you know, as businesses grow, they're making lots and lots of decisions. Many of them are really important. Many of them are actually you know, unimportant. And what weighs on people's minds really varies. Mm. You know, it's not it's not what you sort of classically think of as getting those decisions wrong or or you know, the business going down the wrong. It's actually my observation to is actually the the ability to believe mm. and the ability to have the energy to keep going when that's really hard and those moments where belief is hardest to see because inevitably it's lonely and it's hard mm. and so whose responsibility is it it's everyone's responsibility yeah. ultimate self-care is is yeah everyone is standing for themselves mm. you know you, wrapping support in all its forms around the individuals is important and that's mm. sort of the whole base of the story is you know value additive capital is around adding value to the organizations which is really the individuals that comprise the business you know that's that's what we want to do but the best founders have to figure this out. Part of the way that the best founders figure it out is get mentors. Yeah. They learn from others, draw from the people around them. You know, VCs are a really interesting point of support for the business. And when I say interesting, it's a nuanced one. Like we're there to, you know, we're a funding source. Yeah. You know, and we're an advice source. But, mm. you know, when you're coming back to the same person for a check, you want to be a bit careful. Is is the mentality is you want to be a bit careful telling them where you, what your fears and doubts and yeah, concerns are. Yeah, and, and and I think um, for a lot of founders, it's a source of stress, um, and they and they question how vulnerable they can be with with their funding partners. You know, if I look at um, speaking to founders. Um, the fear of failure is a really broad umbrella, right? And it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. But when I speak to founders, one of the things they that sort of comprise of that is this fear of disappointing other people. And so, you know, failure, you know, and you can have micro failures, but failure in general 
to most founders I've spoken to is more about, well, you know, I, I went and approached somebody and I said, well, invest in the business, but it's really, I'm putting myself on the line. I'm sort of saying, well, Paul, like invest in me. Um, and so when there are things that aren't going great, it's, it's almost being driven by this fear of disappointment and disappointing their, their, could be their partner, their spouse who may have given up things so they could be an entrepreneur. It's their team. It's their investors. Um, and so I think when I speak to a lot of founders, it's hard for them to be vulnerable um, with their with their investors. And maybe they don't need to, right? Maybe they can find other sources of, of you know, mentorship. Um, but when I speak to a lot of VCs, they say, well, look, you know, I, I, want, I want to have a dialogue with a founder that's open and authentic and honest. Um, so it's sort of this tension, right, between the two. And, and it's it, and it, like human relationships, they're all unique. Yeah. You know, I think one of the opportunities we have is to um, build those relationships. And we set ground – every relationship has overt and you know, uh, implied rules. Mm. Um, and if you can create those relationships with the founders where – you are living to the commitment you've made them, mm. which is that you're there to support them. We know shit's going to go wrong. Part of our job is to help you avoid it. Part mm. of our job is to help you get out of it. Yep. And that is personal support. So that is not just the day-to-day moments that happen, although that is part of it. It's actually about what's the infrastructure that's best suited around that individual. I mean, just take holidays, for example. You know, mm. there's, a, there's a narrative that if you're working harder than the next person, you'll win. Mm. Absolutely right. This is not an easy job. This is not a nine to five job no. you know, for any of us uh so yeah i think over christmas last year there was a guy in the state saying yeah while everyone else is off for christmas i'm working through and that's you know, oh, yeah. working it's, out it's like a gary vaynerchuk we're all crushing it yeah <laughs> that's, and, and that's that's great for some people like sure. there's nothing inherently wrong with that except it's not for everyone mm. and so people have to understand and learn their own limits like, I'm, I'm very bad at knowing when i need a holiday but no. thankfully my wife is very good at it <laughs> and so you. she will say she'll say you know this is the time and i'll go no no, no and i'll really resi- resist it mm. and then we'll go away for a long weekend and i'll say geez i needed that mm. and so I've, I've you know learned that what i actually need is that support mechanism when my wife says that she's probably right and the second time she says that she's definitely right mm. founders it's the same thing so whether it's having that next line management mm. and this is one of the th- observations is around understanding what's required in your professional environment to get the best out of yourself mm. so founders tend to hold on to responsibility for too long and it is that obligation you were talking about it's to their teams and to their co-founders and to their investors and to their spouses and friends the ability to actually attract people to their vision and mm. join the company and share responsibility and give up the lego is now being used that's really important that's a that's not just a a mental health issue that's an operating health issue for Mm. the business that's a risk factor when we see that not happening we're able to sort of identify it and step in we don't need to have a relationship with the founder at that point that says hey come and tell me all your vulnerabilities and tell me how you think and feel it's actually just recognizing the signs and putting some infrastructure but there is also that understanding that everyone's unique and everyone needs different support mechanisms. And I think, um, look, I've sat on a number of startup boards and I'm sure you do too. Um, I think one of the challenges that directors face um, on the board of a startup is what their role is because, you know, you've got obviously regulatory and compliance roles and, you know, we all can go and do Australian Institute Company director courses and understand that. But for me, um, an additional part of that role of, of, of sitting on a startup board is to to not only be able to provide advice for 
uh, a startup founder or a CEO, but also maybe to provide a bit of a mirror and external perspective and say, hey, mate, like you're looking burnt out. You know, you should take some time off. And I guess I think sometimes founders feel like they need permission to do some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and they're surrounded, I think, sometimes by – I guess mythology and and curated views that no everybody else's like and by the way I love what I do so like you know if if you're engrossed in what you're doing and you feel healthy and you're working twenty four hours like, rock on right but um you know I see a lot of founders who are like to the wall and and feel like they can't take their foot off the accelerator because nobody else is you know yeah I think that mythology is really important. Yeah, mm. to, to draw her out and to call out. Mm. Yeah, you know, I was talking to a founder in San Francisco, an Aussie guy. He said it took me sort of eighteen months to realise that I was performing as well as everyone else. But for that first eighteen months, everyone's going, "We're four hundred percent quarter on quarter yeah, growth, yeah. and we're everybody's crazy, and yeah, life is amazing, and you know, we're we're going to be." The, and and the truth is, there's that layer of bullshit that lives <laughs> yeah, over the top of it. Absolutely, and yeah, you know, there's a game to be played, and like every game, you got to understand the rules. Yep. Um, yeah. but yeah, I think. We're into a phase now, just in society generally, of mindfulness and and sort of appreciation of the human fable mm. uh, and foible, yeah, you know, and understanding that yeah you know, we are imperfect creatures. And and one of the things I think again that drew Jim and I together is this love of that founder imperfection. Mm. You know, it's actually the humans that sit at the middle of it. Tech businesses are built by humans, and so you know, one of the jobs that we're doing when we're assessing a company is you know, if 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 people can be well-rounded personalities, founders ain't it. Mm. You know, so what does their shape look like? What are the gaps from a business perspective, from a mental health perspective, from a mentoring perspective, from a skills perspective, and how do we complement that? That role on the board, but yeah, so to come back, everyone's different. I was with one of our uh, founders that we backed last night, and he said, look, I just want to know you're there when I need you. Yeah, I don't want you to bother me when you when I don't. Mm. Fantastic. As long as you know, we can see, like you're saying, that he's going all right, mm. then – that's fantastic. You know, we're not going to impose ourselves. We have to be really careful that you know the founders actually we don't own their business. They do. Mm. We don't own their destination. They do. If we're there to enable to help them, I think our value is sort of a, a function of the advice and support we can give them divided by our levels of distraction. Mm. You know, we're not going to impose ourselves. But if you can build that relationship through this journey and understand what the warning signs are, yeah, um, and understand that. There's no rules for everyone. There's no there's no one answer for everyone. I, I couldn't agree more. I was having a conversation with somebody recently about um, external stresses on founders and, and the idea that sometimes it isn't necessarily their business that's stressing them out. It could be home, it could be their finances, you know, and uh, and this this um you know, this the, this person's view was they should, you know, take a little bit of money off the table in every round and just take the pressure release off, you know, and there's this kind of view that, you know, founders don't take any money out until the B round and, and all those things. And I think it's different for every startup, but it sort of gave me a bit of a I guess a perspective where like I intrinsically knew that, but um, you know, his experience was that, you know, a lot of founders acting out inside their startup is sometimes because, you know, they're not seeing their kids or they're, you know, they're stressed at home or their credit cards are maxed out. And there's a whole bunch of things that I think, you know, you're right. I mean, it's, it's different for different people, but um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a complex environment for founders. Absolutely. And we, we shouldn't, again, mythology or romanticizing this journey, mm. like typically founders are poorly paid high on their long-term incentive. Right. Short on, yeah, very short on short-term incentives. Mm. Yeah, and one of the things that Startup Master told us, which we, yeah, we see in our own portfolios, most founders are not 
21-year-olds coming out of university. No. They're typically 30-something-year-olds, often with families, often with dependents. You know, it doesn't matter. This is non-gender specific. You know, these are people who are used to earning a good income mm. who now are no longer. Mm. And so what does that do to the lifestyle they've already developed? So there's, there's a ton of external stresses. There's no simple answer. We shouldn't look to try and fit the startup journey into a box. Mm. And and people have to understand that. Like we've certainly let, yeah, encouraged, in fact, founders to take some money off the table. Mm. And that's not because we're bleeding hearts. It's because we're protecting our investment. Yeah. And I and I think a lot of people are short sighted. I mean, you know, in terms of this this mythology that if you you know have the founder completely strung out and you know waiting for their long term equity, they're going to work harder. But I think there's a really is a tipping point where the founder goes, you know, I can't pay my mortgage, and you know, and and they're not thinking about the business, right? And and they're actually less effective um, yep. at, at work. And look, it's it's like any line manager. You know, you you got to figure out what gets the best out of your people, yep. and that is actually. Yeah, as much as anything else, that is our job. How do we how do we complement that and create the environment for success? Whether it's yep. new people or new working processes, the commercial structures, whatever it might be, we want big businesses that take time. You mm. know, by definition, to reach success. You know, we'd love to have a billion dollar company in you know first twelve months, but yep. it tends not to happen. <laughs> so Damn. yeah, how do, yeah, and so that resilience is actually a critical part of it. You know, mm. how how do you get through the times that are not a clear dotted line towards your your big outcome. Mm. You know what are those um, coping methods that the individuals have to develop? Mm. Um, yeah, there's no there's no single answer. No, there isn't. And and look, uh, everybody talks about failure as it relates to founders and entrepreneurs, but I don't think everybody thinks about it in terms of how it impacts VCs. Um, and that you know they're they're these big faceless you know bottomless pits of money. Um, how do you deal with failure? Um, because eventually you've got to go back to your LPs and say, hey, you know, I mean, and look, you know, for those of you who don't understand, in the venture capital world, there's general partners and limited partners. For those people who don't understand, limited partners put the money in and general partners manage the money is a, is a fair statement. Um, and I guess you have a – most of VCs have a portfolio of businesses and so you're not exposed to single point risk. But um, how do you deal with failure as a, as a, as a general partner in a firm? Oh. The, the part of it's about yeah we talk about structural and, and in the mm-hmm. moment structurally when we told our investors this is what we're going to do uh, given it is a given that we will have failures yes you know it's just, there's no VC in the world no matter how good we are we're going to have a hundred percent strike rate mm. now we try to minimize the number of failures and maximize the value from those failures but um, we actually learnt really early on that when we try and tell everyone everything's great all the time mm. the credibility is not there. And so we've become, you know, really quickly became very transparent and said, you know, there's good times and there's bad times. We've we've had very few companies like legitimately, genuinely fail, just yep. you know, go out of business. Uh, when they've happened, we've been really open about why that is, what we learnt from it, uh, and that's all people are looking for. Mm. I think this notion of failure is is pretty misunderstood. I think you know, mm. we we as a young ecosystem with learning mythologies from other environments, we go, oh, we should embrace failure. Failure is you know, not a, something to be ashamed of. That's true, but it's also not something to strive for. No. You know, failure is not an outcome that we're looking for. No. We just have to have an understanding of what it means, why things fail, what can we learn from it, how do we ad- adapt it. And Certainly when I talked about the companies I worked for or advised in Silicon Valley, not all of them worked out. No. And, and I can you – know, 
pretty good at actually looking back and going, I learned more lessons from the ones that didn't work than the ones that mm. did. There's no question. And how do you apply that? So in our role in venture capital, one is managing expectations, two is being transparent, three is applying the learnings. Mm. I'd be interested in your, your opinion because you've obviously worked in the US and in Australia. I have two and I have a – I guess a sense that the cultures have a very different view of failure from an entrepreneurial standpoint. And and my, my sense is that, that Americans have a healthier view of failure than Australians do. Is that your sense or do you have a different view? I think we're getting better in Australia. I think failure, if you had a business that failed, you know, five, ten years ago, you kind of got to leave the country and yep. you, know, you, you, you could never raise money again and yep. or you could never get a job. Yeah, it, It's terminal. Yep. I don't think it's terminal anymore. Mm. I think uh, – I do think in America, you know, failure is, is a you – know, and, and certainly it matches my personal belief is failure is not a desirable outcome but mm. it, it will be inevitable at times and it's actually what you take from it. You know, mm. This is – if you think about the journey, like you know, uh, there are moments – when I look back at – my journey, there were lots and lots of points where I got things wrong. Yeah. You know, and sometimes I had big implications, sometimes I had small implications. Our job is to not do the same mistakes again and to actually behave well. I think where failure in Australia has suffered is because people have behaved very, very badly and that is unforgivable. Mm. Yeah, you know, I say unforgivable. When people have you know, looked out for themselves, not done everything they can to support their thesis or their investors or they've sort of given up too early or, you know, what perceived to be too early or actually taken investors for a ride. Yep. That kind of failure is not okay. No. You know, failure where you've had an ambitious idea, you've given it your best pursuit, you've been, you've been behaving in line with your values and the alignments that you put to your investors and your staff you know, and your partners and you know, shit just didn't work out yep. despite best efforts. I don't think anyone in Australia right now would say that's a punishable offence. Mm. I think if you've done your best endeavours and you've been transparent, you've been communicative, no one can punish you for that. And when you come back again, when I can tell you the founders of the business that I've been involved with that didn't work, I'm much more likely to back them again. Yeah, I, I feel the same. I mean, I feel that founders who are second time round, and I think you're right, if if they – we're not talking about fraud or, you know, they, they you know, went and bought – you know, dozens of air on chairs or whatever, you know, they end up doing. But they, you know, they had a crack and I guess it to me it comes down to how self-aware they are and whether or not they can absorb the lessons of the failure. Uh, but but I, I met a founder recently whose business went to the wall and I'm like, I would so back this founder in whatever he's looking to do next, just given, I guess, the scars to a certain degree that, you know, I think – one of the things, the challenges we face because our I, I view our ecosystem here as um, definitely more evolved than it was five years ago, but still far like, you know, we don't have second generation, third generation, fourth generation founders here like that they do in the Valley. Um, and so you're starting to get, you know, the the historical founders coming back and reinvesting, but, but you just don't have that generational sort of wisdom that comes with having four, five or six rounds of sort of startups. Um, but for me, I think that, um, you know, we're getting to a point where, there are founders coming back again um, with with that maturity. I think that's uh, we're importing some of that talent. Mm. So Aussies, yeah, you know, for the first time, we started to see really good talent coming. 
back to Australia and mm. I think we've got a lot more work to do there. I think we've got something really amazing to sell, which is an incredible lifestyle, smart people and lots of opportunity. Mm. Um, and from government down, we need to do a lot better job at promoting that. But we're starting to see that. Mm. And so actually learning from others' failures is much better. Mm. So let's let, you know, so wrapping those people around our startups is really important. That multi-generational piece is, is, is right. But you know, where failures sort of you – know, the exception is where people just make the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah. That's what we talk about, sending the elevator down to the ground floor. We want to avoid that. Mm. We want people to be able to get on you know, at the fifth floor and start flying. Mm. And so if we don't have – that's going to take time for people to build, exit, and then start it again. Mm. So how do we get that learning back into our ecosystem early without having to wait a generation for it to happen? I think mm. that's where funds like Rampersand and a number of others are trying to bring that wisdom to the table first up. Mm. Um. When you're uh, – two questions. I mean, do you have a view on what you think it takes to be a good founder? <laughs> I'm always an evolving view. And that's, yeah. that's our that's, – yeah, that's my job. But I know what some of the componentry is. Mm. Um, we talk about uh, pathological optimism mm-hmm. as a core factor. Yeah. The truth is most founders, most great founders are very data-driven mm. and the data says they're going to fail. Mm. So why are they doing it? It's because yeah. they've got yeah an optimism. That optimism could be born from naivety. That optimism could be born from deep research, or just you know not arrogance, but you know strong confidence and maybe into arrogance. Mm. It's also matched by a pathological paranoia. Mm. Uh, that's a very strange combination: the pathological optimism and paranoia. If you're too optimistic, you just fall off the end of the of the cliff. You know, yeah. you've got to have that paranoia. And that paranoia can be driven by fear of failure. Can be driven by, you know, the um, you know, six failures in the past. It can be driven by just a natural inclination to you know drive forward, both optimistically and cautiously. So that's a really interesting blend of, uh, and that brings to the table the resilience. You know the competitive natures. Um, they're probably the sort of the, the four parts to it. Mm. One of the really interesting things, you know, so when you're in America, everyone, every founder manifests like that. They all look hyper ambitious, hyper, you know, careful with their ambition, you know, well thought through, very competitive, and 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 very resilient. You know, yeah, they'll tell you. You don't. You, you, yeah, <laughs> they'll tell you in the first five minutes. Yeah, yeah, and and. So you've kind of got to look behind the words to understand what's going on there. The inverse is often true in Australia. People mm. don't necessarily manifest as highly ambitious, highly optimistic, highly driven, highly competitive. Mm. And again, you've got to look behind the words there. So you know, we have a, 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 one of our, you know, one of the founders we've backed is doing extremely well. And when we first asked him and said, "What would you do if Google came along and gave you twenty million bucks?" Mm. and he said, "Oh, I'd sell it in a heartbeat." Now, normally, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, that's a that's a walk-away moment. Mm. But we just had done so much work with this guy and understanding what made him tick. We knew that was just a very kind of cultural response. Yep. And we asked him nine months later, "What would you do if Google came along and gave you twenty million dollars?" And he said, "I'd give him point one percent of the company. I'd tell him to go and get stuffed." Right. And that was you know, this person had immersed themselves into this journey. Had gone to Silicon Valley, actually San Francisco, and spent time and understood. And with the, the true founder, we're starting to stand up. So it can still be hard in Australia to actually understand what the underlying drivers are. Mm. We try and use data and gut. You know, gut's good, data's better. Yeah. There is no one answer. Like we're, we're actually embarking on a bit of a longitudinal study in understanding what is the makeup of that founder. Mm. Yeah. You know, 
well, it'll take us a generation to, to truly get the model, but we think we recognise what it's starting to look like. Do you think entrepreneurs are born or made? I, no answer yet. No answer? Look, I, I think it's, it's different. I think, you know, there are people who on paper, you go, you don't have the burning passion and they've come to a business just by, you know, just studying where the gaps are. Where's the supply-demand disconnect? Where's that demand curve going to go that other people haven't quite realised yet? Where's the proper... And, and they're really sort of super analytical mm. come to that end of the spectrum, not necessarily personally attached to the problem. Mm. And they're just driven in that way. They'll build a business against that. And that's, that's not necessarily classically entrepreneurial, mm. you know, or what we would consider the stereotypical entrepreneur. You know, there's other people who are you know, blindly, naively just have this vision of the future they they can't rest until it's true and that's what we more consider it to be entrepreneurial there's so many lessons to go through the risk taking for everyone manifests differently you spend time really fortunate to spend time with you know, very high achieving sports people yeah they're very similar profiles and mm. we used to say you know that there's high pressure high visibility high stakes you know high ambition um and if you look at you know whatever sport you follow, you look at the different personalities that are in that sport. Mm. They're really varied. You know, yep. were they born or were they created? We don't know yet. But yep. there's something burning. Some of them desiring. just work hard, and some of them are naturally talented. Although I've, I mean, I used to believe that they were born, but increasingly I think that talent only gets you so far. Natural talent, and you've got to work hard at it. But, but it'd be good to see what the data is. If um if somebody was listening to this podcast and they were either thinking about leaving the corporate world, or they were a school leaver, or they're sitting at uni and they go. I like this startup thing. I've heard about it. I've watched the social network. Um, what advice would you? I've read Ted Crunch. What advice would you give them? Do your research. Yeah, you know, dig beneath the hype layer. Yeah, you know, this is this is not a journey for everyone. You know, we. If you think about success, huge success is not normal. Mm. So generally, normal people aren't successful. Mm. You know, this is about special and, and different and um, everyone has a role to play and I think finding that role is, is quite hard. You know, I think when people come into this world and I want to be a, you know, this environment, I want to be a founder, I want to be a founder, I want to be a founder. Mm. Yeah, that's one role. You know, then there's the sort of first five or first ten employees. Then mm. there's you know, the next 40 and then there's the investors and then there's the advisors and every, there are roles for everyone. Mm. Founder is not the only role. And so my my advice is understand as best you can what you're good at mm. and where that fits. You know, I was frustrated. I said before, I was frustrated not being a founder. Yeah. I really am jealous of those people who are founders. But my mm. calling is actually, and I understand it now, is mm. actually helping those founders. I'm not that person. And, so. I also, and I also think there's a subtle difference because I think people who come out of it and say, come into it and saying, I want to be a founder, um, I sort of... I look at a different group of people and go, actually, I want to solve a problem or I want to start a business or I've got this like really burning itch and to solve that, I will found a business, right? And and I think that, you know, they're, they're sort of, I, I guess, I don't want to read into it too much, but it is indicative to me of somebody who goes, look, I just want to be in the ecosystem. I want to start, I want to be a founder versus, do you know what? This is really pissing me off and I want to solve it, you know? And those founders are like, I think, go the distance, yeah, I think that's right. Although I do still think that there is absolutely room for that analytical person that yep. says there's a problem to be solved. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think we just shouldn't overlay romanticize. So you think this connection? Journey. Do you think connection to the problem is not as critical as some people think it is? Look, I think if you look at Jeff Bezos and said, you know, what was the problem he 
critically felt he wanted to solve. It wasn't Amazon. No. You know, uh, he saw an opportunity and he's just incredibly good at executing against it. <laughs> Richest man you know, in the world. I think both models are absolutely fair. I think we as humans warm to the passion, mm. but I don't think it's it's that means it's more important. I think understanding what that individual's prepared to go through mm. uh, when the times aren't as good, what is their connection to the outcome, that's really important. But it doesn't need to be that massive passion for the problem. Um, last question before we go to quick fire questions. Um, you mentioned a little bit that 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 founders are extreme. You know, they are extremely optimistic and extremely paranoid. Um, and and you know, abnormal outcomes sometimes require abnormal people. Um, how do you manage them? Like as as a VC on boards, do you make allowances for that? Because I mean, I've worked with hundreds of founders, and I'm sure you have too. Um, and they are diverse. I don't mean to cast a, a generalization, but you know, they're unique people, and and they're difficult at times. Yeah. How do you how do you do how do you deal with it? Firstly. That's why we do this. Mm. You know, and I think that's really important. I think it's a really hard investment class for bankers to do mm. because it's a human business. Yeah. And you know, I'm far less equipped to pour over a spreadsheet than I am to pour over a founder's you know, personality. Yeah. If, if, you know, it's probably the right, wrong way to put it. But I know what you mean. You have to love it. And mm. I think you know, when we came to this, that was the central point. You have to love it. And you spent enough time. We spent 20 years supporting founders. That's where my energy comes from is that all the flaws and all the greatness and learn from them as much as they learn from me. And, you know, I have the advantage I've got is experience. You know, oftentimes that's the, it's the lessons that you can share. So those quirks are what's exciting about them. You know, I think mm. there's a lot of great jobs, great people out there who are working in law firms and accounting firms yep. and physiotherapy practices and – you know, on farms and doing whatever they're doing. There's nothing wrong with that. They're fantastic. The people who I'm drawn to and mm. Jim's drawn to are those wonderful people who see a world that we haven't seen yet mm. and who are really committed to making that world come true. And they're exciting to go on their journeys with them. And you know, our right to play is to respect them. Mm. You know, we talk about their profiles. That you know, It sort of dehumanizes. You know, respect yeah. them, you know, admire them, mm. uh, and, and support them. I think that's I think that's a really good place to to uh, to end. Uh, in terms of just a couple of quick fire questions, um, do you have a favourite book? Oh, it changes all the time. I, I, I um, the book I most recommend at the moment is uh, Shoe Dogs, the, the Phil Knight, the founder of Nike Story. Yeah, and I think what's brilliant about him, he was an accountant and mm. he just loved running and he loved athletics and he loved the you know, saw that there was a better way to do it. He doesn't see himself as a risk taker which is just phenomenal for anyone who reads the story and see yeah. the risks that he took. He, does, he, he actually self-declares that he never took a risk. For most people, you look at that and you hold me. Yeah, yeah you're is. going, wow. So, yeah, love that book. Um, favorite app? Goodness. Uh, I, mean, I probably use Uber more than I use uh, <laughs> anything else. <laughs> Are you a pineapple on pizza person? Definitely not. Really? Definitely strongly not. <laughs> and, I, and, and I'm not a mint on anything other than dessert or toothpaste person either. Really? Excellent. Um, favorite podcast or TED Talk? Are you? Uh, look, this is going to sound really cliche. The, the TED Talk I do keep going back to is Simon Sinek's uh, about the, the start Starting with why. With yeah. Yeah, amazing. Um, if you could invite someone to dinner, living or dead, who would it be? Uh, I think it would be Zuckerberg right now. Really? Yeah. Oh, I could talk to you about that for hours on Facebook. Why? 
I think yeah, there are very few people who have just changed the fabric of how we operate and he's mm. facing some really significant questions right now, you know, right down to what it is as a platform. Mm. You know, is it a publisher, is it a utility? Both answers have very yeah. significant repercussions for that business. Yeah. How they think about that, how, how – yeah, there's so many things that he's done that are unprecedented, mm. including you know, recruiting Cheryl and having the, the wherewithal to – have that balance in his business between the operations and the vision. Mm. So, yeah. It'd be interesting if they, oh yeah, I, we could talk about whether they're a publisher or not. If they go down the publisher route, they are in for a whole world of pain in my opinion. But yeah. um, And depending on when, when this goes to where, I think Elon <laughs> would be an interesting person to have over and obviously you have to just drop acid with him over the weekend. Oh, and, yeah. And, well, and, and let him, give him a phone to tweet. That'd funding be pretty interesting. secured. Um, uh, an Australian startup or founder that you think needs some public acknowledgement and, and is not getting their fair share or nor needs to get some attention? Um, look, it's really hard to pick between our children. But, yes. Uh, look, I think we've got some f- just incredible companies. You know, Assembly Payments is probably Australia's most successful fintech company outside of the lending space. Yeah, I know, Simon. Uh, well. Because it's infrastructure, it's less sexy and Australians love debt. Mm. So our funding... You know, our, our debt businesses, lending businesses are really you know, high profile. I think Assembly is doing things at, a, at an international first rate level. That, you know, they're well known, but they're probably under-recognised for just how good they are. Yeah. Um, you know, Expert 360 is changing, changing a world. You know, Send all in, in, in logistics. Uh, Cog, which is one of you – know, I sort of said when we started, I didn't think we'd ever invest in uh, cybersecurity. <laughs> uh, we invest in Cog systems and, and you know, it's really not public yet, but what they have achieved is, again, world-class. So. Phenomenal. And if people want to find out more about Rampersand or you, where's the best place for them to uh, look? Head to our website, just rampersand.vc, or uh, we're, we're reasonably prolific publishers on, on Medium. On the Medium. Where does uh, the name come from? So a few different places. Uh, the idea was really about helping companies ramp, right? Um, so through that ramp stage, and then it was the idea of you know, ramping plus more. So yeah. the ampersand and and our ampersand looks quite elegant, we think. Um, <laughs> but actually, the ampersand comes from academia. So if 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 Jamie and Paul worked on something together, mm. it was Jamie ampersand Paul. If right. we worked on something independently, it was Jamie and Paul. So the oh. ampersand really is inherent in this collaboration. I didn't know that. Yeah, there you go. I, I love the struggle of names. How many names did you go through before you oh, got to that? Look, hundreds. <laughs> and and I, it's fair to say that my partners hated it to start with, but it was it stuck. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a good name. And now I know the background. Mate, I know you're really, really um, uh, slim on time, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No, thanks for having me. Great pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then please spread the word and also don't forget to rate us on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about me or the podcast, then check out jamiepride.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe to make sure you get all the latest episodes. Have a great week and don't forget to take care of yourself. 